Uh, he, he says the Word was with us, or was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything. So, so our expectations actually are being raised about who it is he's going to tell us about in his gospel. And so, you know, normally if you're talking about, you know, a human being, you don't want to raise people's expectations for fear they be disappointed. We don't have to worry about that with Jesus. In fact, we're always going to not quite go high enough. And so John starts us out by saying, understand who all this is going to be about and who he is and what he is like. He is, in fact, God, the eternal one. So get that into your mind and into your heart before we even get into any of the details. And he's taken us to John the Baptist, the one who came to bear witness about who Jesus is the one who has come and prepared the way for understanding him. And so last week, well, we saw how the Jewish leaders had come to John the Baptist and said, well, who are you? You're out here in the wilderness, and crowds are coming to you out here in the middle of nowhere from Jerusalem. They're coming to you from the whole surrounding area of Judea. And why are you doing this? Who are you claiming to be? What are you up to? If you remember, as we saw last week, he was very clear, answered the first burning question that he knew they had, and said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah, the expected one. Remember, then they pressed further. Well, are you Elijah? Going to prophecies, they talked about Elijah coming before the day of the Lord. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. Or are you the prophet? I'm wondering if he was the prophet that, that God had, had told Moses about that would be like Moses that everyone would be accountable to. John says, no. Well, who are you then? Remember, John says, I'm, I'm the one who is preparing the way. Prophesied in Isaiah, preparing the way of the Lord. So in other words, you better get ready. I'm preparing the way not just for another prophet, not just for someone who is not, not ultimate, but in fact, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. A voice, verse 23 says, of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. So expectations are high. And John the Baptist has been busy proclaiming that calling on people to repent, turn away from their sin, and get lined up with God because someone great is coming. One, remember that he said, I'm not even worthy to untie, I, I, I can't even be elevated to the point of, of having the job of untying his sandal, which was something a disciple was never expected to do for his, his disciple or for his rabbi. And now we have an opportunity. An opportunity for John to not just speak in general, not just say, well, somebody's coming, but an opportunity to actually point out who it is that's coming. So follow along with me in, in John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 29 through 37. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came, baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, right? And he's gone through just the previous day this, this grilling by the representatives of the Jewish uh, religious leaders, sent by the Pharisees, wanting to know, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And you might think John would see Jesus and say, there he is, he is Christ, he is Messiah. Or, look it, he, people were looking for the prophet, here he is. He's right here in front of us, right at this moment. Look, pay attention. But he doesn't say he is the Messiah. He doesn't say he is the prophet. He says, look, pay attention. Get this. That's all wrapped up in that word behold. Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the main thing they needed to get out of this. That's who they need to understand Jesus to be. So more importantly than giving those other truths about him, and those are true about Jesus, and, you know, you know as, as we look at the New Testament, it was extremely clear that Jesus was and is the Christ, that he is the prophet that was like Moses, that everyone is accountable to. And we know all that, right? But we can't erase those things we already know. Things like 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Look at what, what Peter will later write about him. <clears throat> You're speaking about how we are, we are redeemed. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with Precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of who? Christ or Messiah. Okay, they were looking for an anointed one, maybe a king, a great, great prophet. But John the Baptist wants to say, here comes the one by whose blood you will be redeemed. You will be bought out of your sin. And we know that. We look ahead to, to what Peter wrote. We look at what's, what's proclaimed in Acts. But what in the world 
would John have been thinking when he said, here is the Lamb of God, and especially the people who are listening to him when he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't think that fit what they were expecting out of John. I don't think that fit what they were expecting of the Messiah. But they should have connected in with all those things that they had learned in the Old Testament. They should have clicked in with things they'd known all their lives. And, and a lot of uh, Bible scholars and commentators try to narrow this down to just one spot. But, but God, over the centuries, had been giving this picture over and over. There's a sense in which every sacrifice that was offered, I think even back to Abel and his sacrifice right, from his flock, but all, even all through the law. Now, all of the sacrifices in the law were not lambs. Um, there were goats, and there were bulls, and there were other animals like that. But the picture was always there that sin costs death. And if you're going to escape the penalty for your sin, there has to be death paid still. Somehow, a death has to be given, or a life has to be given, you could say, in death. And I want to just highlight several places, that particularly zero in on this idea of a lamb, because that's the word, that's the, the part that John especially points out. Genesis 22, there's too much there for us to read all that's there, but I think most of you, hopefully, are familiar with the time when God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, up on the mountain and offer him as a burnt offering to me. So here we have the one hope. I mean, Abraham had waited decades and decades, thought he was too old, thought his wife was too old to have a son. But here he has the son of promise, Isaac. And God says, take him up on the mountain, kill him, and burn up his body. And Abraham obeys, or begins to obey. And then he, he gathers up his son, and they head off to the mountain. And they've got the wood and the things that they need, except, you remember, as, as they go up the mountain, Isaac says, Father, we've got, we've got, we've got the wood and all, all those things, but where is the lamb? Notice Isaac was expecting a lamb. God, had, we, we don't have all the details of what God gave them as far as that sacrifice, but Isaac knew enough that it's supposed to be a lamb, and that I think that they understood it had to do with sin and the penalty for sin and the giving of a life in the place of a life. And as you know, that story, Abraham, they get to the top and puts it all together, puts the wood, you know, puts the altar together, puts the wood on there, and ties up his own son, puts him on the altar, and as he is ready to, to bring down the knife to kill him, God stops him and points out, well, what's over there? What's over there in, in, in the brush? Oh, but a ram caught by its horns. This is the lamb God has provided. And we're told in Genesis 22 that he offers that 
ram up in the place of his son, Isaac. And every Jewish person who heard John say, the Lamb of God, they knew that story about Abraham. And they understood that there was a, a, a replacement. There was a, here, this innocent animal didn't, you know, didn't commit sin, didn't deserve death, but taken, put on the altar, and killed where you could say Isaac deserved to be. So here's the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. That's one of the images that would have very likely come to mind when the people were thinking about that. But then there's Exodus 12 as well, where you have the Passover lamb. This lamb might have been the most familiar to the Jewish mind since each year, the whole family of every family in Israel was supposed to participate together and remembering how God redeemed the nation out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them up out of Egypt. And this was the lamb that after living with them for four days, if you look at Exodus 12, as well as the, the, the things that are commanded in, in the law, that they took a lamb, had to be spotless lamb, right? had to be a perfect lamb. And it wasn't the day of this that they that they celebrated Passover, but four days before. So the implication being this lamb came and, and lived where the family lived. And think about doing that with your children. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to name it, right? They're going to play with it. They're going to pet it. They're going to... This is not an unfamiliar animal anymore. But this is a lamb that dwelt among them, you could say. And what did, what did John... The, the apostles say earlier, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then after four days of living with them, what did they do with this lamb? Well, they took it, and they slaughtered it, and they cooked it, and they ate it all together as a family. And that was in place of the firstborn in that first Passover, right? As they're coming out of Egypt and God is sending the plague of death over, over the nation of Egypt in order to not receive the same judgment that the land of Egypt was receiving, they had to have this lamb killed in the place of the firstborn. And then they put the blood, remember, on, on the doorposts and on, uh, over the door. And because of that, judgment passed over their home. And again and again, this was remembered in that feast each year. And so now we have John pointing to Jesus and saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, oh, not just of the Jewish firstborn, but he takes away the sin of the world. That's all tied into the Jewish mindset or psyche or whatever you want to, want to call it. Year after year, in a very personal way, in the family. And then you partook of that animal, right? Doesn't sound too far off from what we're talking about with communion when we celebrate that together, right? And in fact, Jesus started 
communion or the Lord's table at the celebration of Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away, who bears off on himself the sin of the world. So that would have been another example. But there are more. The daily sacrifice at the temple. Uh, turn with me to Leviticus uh, 17.11, back in the law. And in this section, what God has, is doing, you may have heard about the, the different laws about eating, is that the Jewish people were not allowed to eat blood. And that's what's going on here, is God says, you, you know, you, you've got these animals, you, you drain the blood out of the animal, you don't eat the blood, you pour out the blood onto the ground because blood, here verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So in other words, I have set aside blood in animals specifically as a symbol of life. I mean, you see blood, you see life. And in all of the sacrifices on the altars, God says, here's what will make atonement or make a covering over for your sins. Here is what will take the place of the one that the offering is being given for. And so really, there's inherent in all of the sacrifices where blood was involved, a picture that a life has to be given for a life that is owed. A life has to be sacrificed, has to be given in the place of that sinner. But of course, as, as Hebrews tells us, all of those sacrifices couldn't ever pay for sin. They were just a picture. And blood was that, that picture, life given, life given. And if we go to Numbers, we find out that particularly at the, at the tabernacle and then at the temple, Numbers 28, 3 through 6, every day there were two lambs that were offered related to that. Numbers 28, verses 3 through 6. You shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hint of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which is ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire, to the Lord. And so every single day, there's two lambs. One in the morning, one in the evening, their blood, a symbol of life, on the altar, where that symbolism played out a picture that sin deserved death. 
But that went on, right? And on, day after day, every morning, every evening, a picture that sin deserves death. And the only way to, to get around that is just a life has to be given in its place. That atonement, again, never took away the sins, but was a reminder again and again. And now we have John the Baptist pointing out to this man, and there he was walking among them, and, and really nobody quite understood who he was. But there is the Lamb of God who will bear the sins of the world. He will carry them on himself. He will, he will actually take them away so that those sins won't just remain and we have to have the symbol again and again, another lamb and another lamb and another lamb. And then there's Isaiah 53. If you turn there with me. We have the suffering servant who is like a lamb. Of course, Isaiah 53, one of the most familiar chapters in Isaiah and we'll just look at verses 4 through 7. But here talking about the one who in verse 11 will be called my servant by God. And so this is what the one who is called the servant of God is like. Uh, verses 4 through 7 it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, watch carefully here, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And so this passionate revelation to Isaiah focuses on the suffering servant who will bear our griefs and our sorrows. He will be killed, pierced for our sins. He will bring about healing for us. But he had to be like a lamb, right, for the sheep. Who are the sheep? Oh, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, right? We have all wandered. We all have to have the Lamb of God. It's not like some of us are, oh, you're pretty good, so you're all, no. All we, like sheep. And John had a variety of people show up and be there. And to the, all the different categories, he pointed out they had problems. They needed to, what, repent. They needed to turn around and get ready for him who was going to come. And now he points out to them, it's this one. This one who is the Lamb of God. The one who's been symbolized for us, been pictured for us over the centuries. He's here. 
And stop and think about how John did this. I mean, do you really think he, he said, oh, behold the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. I don't think so. This is why he was there. This was his purpose, was to prepare the way for this one. And now God says, okay, here's the opportunity. I think John's saying, look, get this, don't miss this fact. That one you can see, that man walking in front of you is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is here. Hope is ours now. That's the Lamb of God. And if we go back, back again to John, that he reemphasizes something. And when, when God repeats himself, pay attention. Listen. He's saying this is important. And John repeats again for us here these words. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Understand. that he was in a continual state of existence before I came to be. Remember, we've already heard that the Word existed in an ongoing way in the past, in the beginning. John has emphasized to it again, this is the, the, the eternal one. This isn't just anybody. He's excited to point out the one he's, he's talking about and say, this, this man is infinitely greater than me because he's, he's the always existing one. There's a significance here because you deserve eternal death. Who can pay eternal death? The one who is eternal. Do you think I'm great because of all these crowds that are following me? No, he is infinitely greater. Here is the one who is the Lamb of God who is also eternal, and therefore can bear our sins away. Well, how do you know this to be true, John? I mean, you're, just, you're this guy out here dressed funny in the middle of nowhere. Why should we believe what you have to say? You know, maybe you're just some sort of a fad. Maybe you're a, you know, a flash in the pan. How do, how do we know that what you're saying is true? Well, verses 31 through 33... John tells us. He said, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending on him as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so John brings it back. He's, again, he says, don't make too much out of me. I didn't, literally the word, I didn't know him. Now we don't really know how much John and Jesus knew each other prior to this point. We know from the Gospel of Luke that they were, they were related, that Mary and Elizabeth were related to one another. But on the other hand, they lived a long way from each other by terms of if you have to walk, right? Uh, John grew up in the southern part of Israel, and Jesus grew up in Nazareth to the north. Did they interact? Did they see each other at, at the feasts where they all came at like Passover and, and showed up in Jerusalem? Maybe. 
Um, but remember um, that, that John's parents were very old when he was born. Um, one, one tradition says he was actually raised up out in the wilderness with a religious group called the Essenes. We don't know if that's true or not, but, so we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us how much they knew each other even though they were related. But the truth is that's not the point here. He's really not pointing out whether he, he knew him and had a relationship with him. It's did he know that he was the sent one, that he was the Messiah, that he was this Lamb of God? John saying, I didn't always know that this is the one who was going to fulfill those prophecies. In fact, he's emphasizing the fact here that he didn't just intuitively recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God. He didn't figure that out on his own, as though he was somebody just brilliant and, and important. But in fact, he re it required for him a sign from God. Uh, that's what verses 32 and 33 tell us. God had told John directly, he says, the one who sent me, and remember early on in chapter 1, it says, there was a man sent from God. And this actually gives greater credibility to his story. If he'd have said, well, I, I, I saw him, and of course he's the Messiah. Of course he's the Lamb of God that was, that was figured for us all through the Old Testament. No, he said, I didn't, I didn't recognize that he was that one. But the one who sent me, God actually told me, the one you see the Holy Spirit descending on, that's him. So let's just look, look briefly at the longer version of John figuring that out. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 17, where we, we get the details. John just, just jumps entirely over this. He knows it's, he's... he's probably had access to these other Gospels, because this is many years after they were written. <clears throat> but his point isn't to give all these details. But he's, here, here are the details. It says, Truly I say to you, among those born among women, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 11, not chapter 3. It did talk about John the Baptist, though, if you can believe that. <clears throat> uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. As for me, this is John speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, but, and, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for it is in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here's similar to some of the things we've already seen in John but with an emphasis on the judgment of God, right? He talks about the winnowing uh, stick that is in his hand. Judgment's coming with this one. 
And of course, that still we still haven't seen that yet. But he gives us the details there of Jesus' baptism, where John must have recognized at least there was something special about Jesus. He says, I should be, you should baptize me. And Jesus insists. But the issue of the Spirit coming on him and descending on him, looking like a dove, was really critical. Because that's how John would know for sure who the one he was preparing the way for was. And he witnessed that. Came out of the, out of the, out of the water, and, and here comes the Spirit descending, looking like a dove on Jesus. Why the Spirit on the Messiah, who he's already told us is, is one who has always existed, who is God? Well, it's fulfilling several prophecies in Isaiah, especially, about the one who is coming, who is often called my servant, as, as he was in Isaiah 53. But let's look at Isaiah 11, just for one of those examples. Verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Which tells us, then, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And, of course, Jesse being the father of King David, right? Through whose line the Messiah was supposed to come. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So here, again, a descendant of David. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, the Messiah who is going to come would have the Holy Spirit of God resting on him, in him. You say, well, wait a minute. We've, we've just spent, spent all this time saying Jesus is God. Why does he need the Spirit of God? And that's because he came to be a man. To function as a human being has to. And so Jesus set aside, as Philippians 2 teaches us, his prerogatives as God, and he lived like we have to, in obedience to his Father, according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. He didn't come and just, oh yeah, I'm God, so this is a piece of cake. No, he had to live and breathe and dwell with sinners and all of the effects of the fall as a human being like we do, and he chose, rather than just simply as God, to do that, he said, I will live like you do, directed by the Holy Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit as I go. But then, of course, God doesn't even just leave it with the, the Holy Spirit descending on him and remaining or abiding on him, but in fact... He gets that voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He makes it clearly obvious. This man is the son of God. And think about the confidence this would give John. John's already faced scrutiny from the Jewish leadership. And they are really concerned about him. They're afraid of what this man preaching out in the wilderness might bring about that might disrupt their, their position and their authority and their, their, all the things that they have. John will end up facing imprisonment and eventual death for speaking boldly about the truth of sin related to Herod. 
This testimony that we're given by John the Baptist is directly based on what God had spoken. He has direct, clear evidence. This man is the Son of God, not just anyone. And it's a radical truth. It's not only, according to the Father, that Jesus will call God his Father, but here the Father clearly calls Jesus his beloved Son and gives his stamp of approval. Notice he says, in him, or in whom I am well pleased. Every other human being has, as Paul put it, fallen short of the glory of God. But the Father is well pleased in Jesus, his Son. Jesus is completely acceptable to the Father. Oh, well that matches up with the fact that he is what? The Lamb of God, right? He is the pure one. He is the one who will qualify to be our replacement. And it also means he is equal with God. And we've already run into this already in the first chapter of John, so we won't get into it in the same depth we have before. But here the Father makes it certain that Jesus is the Son of God. Not just a man, but one who bears the character the essence of God in a unique way. He is the only begotten of God, or the unique Son of God. We become children of God when we believe, but only Jesus is the unique Son of God. And so when he claims that, what do the religious leaders do? Well, they try to stone him. You can find three examples of that in John chapter 5, John chapter 10, John chapter 19. They understood when he said, my father, that he meant that he was the son. So now John boldly announces here, verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. He is an eyewitness, or I guess you could say an ear witness, right, of that truth from God. This little section here is amazing truth that it lays out for us and that we should be able to take in. And, did, and John, the Baptist, didn't stop there. It wasn't just theoretical. But as verses 35 and 36 tells, he's standing there with two of his disciples one, the next day and he sees Jesus and he says again, what? Behold the Lamb of God. And what do those two, two disciples of John's do? They leave John and they follow after Jesus. Should John be saying, oh, wait, 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 guys. Come back here. Not at all. That was the greatest thing that could have happened in his mind because his point, as he says, is to keep people looking at Jesus. He wants them to follow. That's his whole purpose. He wants them to follow Jesus themselves. And in chapter 3, verse 30, he will say, he must increase but I must decrease. Yes, I've got a lot of attention right now, but the only purpose of that is to transfer that attention to him and urge all men to follow after him. And so when these two disciples of his do that, John's heart was probably thrilled. One of the most exciting things that had happened, I think, to that point, where they said, no, yeah, we don't want to follow you, John. You're, you're, we, we love you. We've learned a lot from you, but here's the one you've been pointing us to all along. 
And so John's testimony as well should be extremely encouraging to us too. Because believing in Jesus is more than choosing a religion. If Jesus truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we are talking about believing in him being a necessity in order to avoid the penalty of sin, that is, an eternity in hell. That's awfully important, isn't it? There's, really, there's nothing more important to us than to get past that judgment that we have on, on us when we're unbelievers. But it's also necessary for us to have a relationship with God and know and understand what life is truly about and be able to make sense of life. I mean, if you recognize as you look around us that even basic reason is something that's coming undone in our world, you know that we need the one who carefully designed this world and everything that exists in it. We need to know him in order to live well in this world. And we can't know him unless we have a relationship with him. And we can't have a relationship with him unless our sins have been paid for and we've received that gift. If you have received that gift, what an what amazing thing it is that you have a relationship with the creator of all that is that loves you more than anyone else and you should press into that relationship because Jesus is the one who makes that relationship possible. And John the Baptist has pointed that out to us with great certainty. He wants us, he would say to us, no, no, this Lamb of God. Live with him and for him. Everything else you do is just the context in which that happens. The job that you have, the place where you live, the things that you own, all of that is just context. Really what life is about is knowing him. And in knowing him and learning his truth, that makes all those other things fit together and have an actual purpose. If you're living for all of that context, you're wasting your life. John says, this is the Lamb of God. Follow after him. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to us and good that, that not only do you give us truth, but you point it out to us plainly if we will listen. And so as, as Jesus often said to those who have ears to hear, I, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds and hearts to understand, and a will to embrace what you have given us to do and to be and, and, and to engage more fully in this walk with your son Jesus and with you, by your spirit. Help us to hear. Help us to be eager to listen. Help us to, to not be drawn away by the, the insane thinking of our, our world around us or the things that we might own or the, uh, the ways that we might live that, that would bring us temporary pleasure. But put in our hearts, first and foremost, the desire to, to know you, to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, strength. Help us to follow Jesus more fully, more completely, and more richly. In his name we pray. Amen.